So our theme for Lent this year is the simple phrase, my gospel. And we've seen that Paul uses this uh, three times in his writing, twice in the book of Romans and once in uh, the pastoral epistle, uh, the book of 2 Timothy. The thrust of what we're trying to get, if you don't remember anything else in this series, uh, we start out with this first statement. It's number one on your handout sheet today, that Christianity is largely a revelation received by the Apostle Paul. Uh, The implications of this are deep, wide, far-reaching. For example, I run into people all the time who are not students of Paul's epistles, of his letters. Um, They're focused on, maybe they're focused on their red-letter People, they're focused on the words of Jesus, or they're focused on the Gospels, or you'll run into Christians that, you know, they spend their entire life uh, studying the book of Revelation. Or there are Christians who get fascinated with uh, some Old Testament books. When I went to uh, Bible school many lifetimes ago, there was a class that president of the Bible school taught, it was simply entitled the epistles. And by that, we mean the letters of the New Testament, the majority of which were written by the apostle Paul. The president of the Bible school was on, wanted to teach something else. So we were taught something else during the epistles class, and we were never introduced to the doctrines of the book of Romans, the book of Galatians. Uh, we spent a lot of time in First and Second Corinthians because that was uh, the Pentecostal church in, in the first century. But as we've seen, the Apostle Paul takes credit, gets the credit for writing the majority of uh, the New Testament epistles. And it seems to me if you're going to be a preacher engaging your people, your audience with the good news of the gospel, to be ignorant of Paul's gospel, which he describes as my gospel, is a fatal flaw, a fly in the ointment. So we saw this last uh, week that there were three charges, uh, evidently, that were leveled against uh, the Apostle Paul, and and we see them uh, kind of surface in Uh, the first two chapters of the book of Galatians, this highly uh, original and biographical material uh, that we have directly from uh, the Apostle Paul a few short years after the crucifixion of Jesus. The first charge was that he was just simply a a lackey or a delegate of the uh, Jerusalem apostles. And we see that in verses 13 through 24 of chapter uh, 1. And he is seeking somehow to distance himself from them. He's saying, my gospel is a revelation that I receive specifically from God. Uh, It it is not a man's gospel. He said, "I, I wasn't taught it. I didn't go to Jerusalem seminary. He says very specifically, If you look in verse 12, for I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation 
of Jesus Christ. So that's one of the unique characteristics of Paul's gospel, who we want to say he, he's the one who owns it, my gospel, is that he, it wasn't taught to him secondhand. Remember, he was not, as far as we know, he was not an eyewitness um, of the crucifixion. He was not one who spent time with the Lord like the rest of the apostles did. This is the ground of authority for his gospel message was that on the road to Damascus and subsequent to that, he received this gospel message by a revelation. The second charge was that he had departed from the Jerusalem gospel. So as we saw last week, we used the word tightrope. Paul is kind of walking this tightrope. He wants to not be too closely associated with Jerusalem, but he also knows and understands that he has to maintain uh, some friendly relationships with uh, these elders, these pillars of the church. He, he goes on, talks about this uh, in the second chapter, whether they really are, they, they seem to be uh, pillars in the church, whether they are or not, only God knows. So he's walking this tightrope. He, he doesn't want to be seen as the product of Jerusalem, but he also knows that Jerusalem as the mother church has ostensibly has the authority or the ability to shut him down. To say, Paul, your gospel message is too progressive, too liberal. You're a rogue, wandering, uh, wannabe apostle. And so he's walking this tightrope between disassociation and association. So the charge was he had departed from the Jerusalem gospel, and, and he simply counters this charge by saying, I went up, I met with them for two weeks, as we saw in the video clip. We discussed it historicized, you know, we swapped stories, really, is, is uh, probably the best translation. And his conclusion is, again, not wanting to disassociate completely from them, he's saying they added nothing to me, they added nothing to me, he said, but we came to this agreement, Peter and James, and, and I came to this agreement that Peter and James would go to the circumcision and that I and Barnabas would preach the gospel to the uncircumcision. And, and then uh, we get, as we saw in the passage that we read together this morning in, in chapter 2, he even describes... Uh, these agitators as members of the circumcision party. The third charge that um, was leveled at him was that he had compromised the truth for practical reasons. So I think Paul saw, and generally speaking, if you were a, if you were a Jew, the further you got away from Jerusalem in the diaspora or the dispersion, because of persecution, the Jews were spread out all over the world. Um, huge pockets of Jews, practicing Jews in towns uh, far flung all over the Roman Empire. But as the further you got away from uh, Jerusalem, th there were two likelihoods. The first likelihood was that 
uh, circumcision as a requirement for synagogue me- membership was kind of downplayed. And secondly, it was more likely that there would be Gentile visitors in the synagogue. So Gentiles, there were some Gentiles who admired uh, the character, the morality of the Jews, even though they were far from the temple, they, they had a construct for the way they lived their lives. And so um, these Gentiles could su- subscribe to Judaism to varying degrees. And typically, it did not require circumcision. It just required um, familiarity with the Torah, the teaching of the Torah, trying to live your life a- according to the law of Moses. So I think Paul saw in that atmosphere then, remember Jesus said to the Pharisees, you strain out a gnat, but you swallow a camel. Remember that? So the idea was because you didn't want to eat or drink anything that was unclean, what you did was you strained through a piece of cloth the wine so that if there was a dead gnat in the wine, you could not be guilty of consuming something that was unclean. But Jesus turns around, so you're very meticulous. You know, you tithe on mint and cumin, the, the smallest kinds of herbs out of your garden. You, you make sure that 10% is, uh, shows up in the temple, but you turn around and the weightier matters of the law. So here is Jesus. Jesus is taking license himself with the meticulousness of the Torah and he's saying he's he's uh, teaching that there are some things in the law that are more important, and and the law, of course, as we've seen it, reflects this. It's one thing to be circumcised in your in your foreskin and your flesh, but is your heart circumcised? Are your ears circumcised? Are your eyes circumcised? See, so there was already the seeds of this if we want to call it progressivism, progressive interpretation of the law, they were all already scattered throughout uh, Moses' writings, and the prophets pick up on this. And, and the prophets say, this is, this is the point. The problem here is not that you, you haven't sub- submitted yourself to the physical act of circumcision. The problem is your heart is not circumcised. So I think that Paul saw then that, let me put it, can we talk this morning? The small-minded, meticulous, you know, penny counters in Jerusalem were going to dictate uh, how Christianity was going to spread abroad. Paul could see that requiring physical circumcision for Gentiles was just going to be an impractical thing to do. To say that you cannot become a follower of Jesus. Now, Paul, uh, as far as Jews were concerned, if you still wanted to follow the law and be a follower of Jesus Christ, that's one thing. But as we heard in this conversation with Peter this morning, you know, uh, gee, Peter, you're a Jew, but you're living like a Gentile. Why, why now are you turning around and forcing the Gentiles to live like Jews? I, Paul has this uh, 
this clarity of vision, this purpose, twice in the text, first and second chapter of the book of Galatians, we hear him use that characteristic phrase, in order that, in order that. This Paul's mind was always thinking in this kind of orderly way, this, this logic, because he was not only a product of the best Jewish teachers, he was raised in a college town, and he un- understood the, the Roman Empire was thoroughly Hellenized. He understood the, the art of the rhetorician. He understood the nature of logic. And he's, he is not uh, skirting the issue here with Peter. He's confronting him. He said, I observed that Peter stood condemned. That describes a man who is standing before a judge and the judge has just said guilty. He stood condemned. Why, why does the defendant, is the defendant asked to, to rise, to stand up when the jury is reading uh, the verdict? It's because of this phrase that has come down to us from ancient civilization that Paul uh, picks up on here. He says, Peter stood, stood condemned. There, there's no uh, prevarication here. There's no saying, well, you know, like, well, we need to talk about this and you and I need to get together. Maybe we can work this, this thing out. Paul is very resolute. He goes to the heart of the matter. You're acting like a hypocrite. Why is it that, you know, before the certain people came down from ostensibly under the authority of James, you're okay living like a Gentile, but now they show up and now you're going to force the Gentiles to live like Jews, although you yourself as a Jew have been living like a Gentile. See, Paul was one of those people, when he bore down, when he, he got focused on you, you were, you were going to squirm until you gave up. So there is this practical side to Paul. He was accused at times of well, this is the reason why you have compromised the gospel of Jerusalem is because you want to make it easier for people to come to become followers of Jesus. So we saw this. This is number three in your handout last week. He defends the gospel. Paul defends the gospel even if it means confronting one of the Jerusalem apostles. And this is what he does. This is the Antioch story. You might uh, underline in your Bible, verse 11, chapter 2, but when Cephas came to Antioch. Uh, Antioch, of course, is is that unique church that uh, eventually overtakes uh, the Jerusalem church. And Antioch is that unique mixture of Jews and Gentiles, largely Gentiles, Barnabas goes looking for Paul. He says, you need to come to Antioch. Your gospel message and what God is doing in the church at Antioch, this is a perfect fit together. The Jerusalem church, of course, we know when Titus comes and lays siege to Jerusalem in 70 AD, the Jerusalem church, the believers in the Jerusalem church, this is uh, Jesus' message in Matthew 24, Uh, When you see this time of tribulation coming, don't go down into the streets. Remember that strange phrase, don't go down in the streets, but make your way out of the city on the housetops, on the rooftops. So in in the streets, you would confront 
the Roman soldiers, but you could, it's um, in the Godfather movie where, um, where the Godfather as a young man, he shoots that one guy in the stairwell, remember? Then he goes back up on the rooftop. He, gets, he takes the gun apart and drops it down like plumbing pipes and chimney. And then he makes his escape across the roofs of the tenements. So this is, this is what Jesus is saying. He's warning them. And this, this, uh, this came to pass when Titus laid siege to Jerusalem. Then the believers in the Jerusalem church were uh, again dispersed. Uh, they got out of Dodge. And then the church in Antioch, the church in Ephesus, the church in Rome, the church uh, in Thessalonica, the church in Philippi, the church in Galatia. These churches begin to burgeon, explode with growth uh, because of Paul's unique reception by revelation of what he describes as my gospel. So a word about confrontation. I often hear people say, you know, I wouldn't go to church because going to church is like sticking your hand in a mailbox full of rattlesnakes. There's nothing but, you know, gossip and people fussing with each other. I can remember uh, as a young man going with my father to a business meeting at a small church in Yonkers, uh, you know, the in New York, it's, Yonkers is one of the boroughs in New York City. And there was a man who was a New York City fireman. He was a big guy. And he wanted to run the church. And my father was the superintendent, so we were there for that business meeting. And he tried to, while my father was conducting the meeting, he tried to come up to the pulpit and displace my father said to my dad afterwards, I said, what would you have done if he, uh, if he had gotten physical with you? He said, uh, my knee was going to go straight into his groin. <laughs> I thought, oh, this is, this is what church is all about, right? We have a little bit of that here with this face-to-face uh, confrontation. C.S. Lewis uh, writes about until we have faces. You know, in, in 1 Corinthians 13, um, Paul writes about that. Now we look through a glass darkly, but then face to face. It's the only other place in the Bible where this phrase, this face to face confrontation. You think about the, here, here we have, you know, when, when the elephants fight, the grass suffers. Here we have two titans representing different parties in the church, different factions. And some people say, well, we should maintain uh, peace at whatever cost. Paul, and I reminded you of this before, Paul's two concerns in his churches are one, holiness, and two, unity. You can have holiness at the expense of unity, you can have unity at the expense of holiness, but to have both together, this is what Paul is striving for. But Paul has made the decision in this particular story that he's telling he, he has decided now that if he has to disassociate himself with Jerusalem completely, that's what he will do because of the revelation that he, he received. And 
this confrontation between uh, Paul and Peter proves that Paul has, has made that decision. I've made my choice. I cannot allow this to stand because it erodes uh, what he describes in this chapter in two places. If you look in Galatians chapter 2, in verse 5, he uses the phrase, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that you might want to underline the phrase there, the truth of the gospel. The truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. You can write your name in underneath the word you that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for Alan, that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for Rick, that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for Christy. And then he uses this phrase again, the truth of the gospel in verse 14. He says, but when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, he feels that he is authorized to point out this distinction. He's willing to admit that Jerusalem has a gospel. But what is, what is at stake here is the truth of the gospel. See, that, that's a further refinement. And again, he's walking, walking this tightrope. We saw last week that we see Paul in kind of a mood of impulsive reflex here. He is responding to these charges. He's answering these charges. And he's not willing to say that Jerusalem doesn't have a gospel, but he is adding a further refinement here saying what's at stake here is the truth of the gospel. So you can have a gospel, hear me this morning, according to Paul, you can have a gospel message that is less truthful. And what Paul is interested in is this irreducible core of the gospel. So we'll ask that question this this morning in an attempt to try to define, begin to define what Paul means by the words, my gospel. What is this truth of the gospel that that Paul is going toe-to-toe with Peter, who was the leader of the disciples and a man Uh, who was appointed by Christ to be the leader of the disciples, that upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now listen to Douglas Moo. He says, the disagreement, this is number four in your handout, the disagreement in this text between the two, between Paul and Peter, in the matter of association between Jewish and Gentile believers should not be minimized, should not be minimized. This is a big deal. This has the potential to divide the church into. Now, the Holy Spirit, I think in the end, the Holy Spirit makes the decision by virtue of the fact that Titus is allowed to lay siege to Jerusalem in 70 AD. The Holy Spirit makes the decision on who is going to win in this clash of the titans. We are proof, by virtue of our presence here this morning, we are proof that Paul's gospel, his gospel, my gospel, is is the gospel that survives and 
thrives uh, for the next 2,000 years. So this disagreement shouldn't be minimized. Paul does think that the truth of the gospel is at stake. Yet the difference is not fundamentally over theology. In other words, uh, the Jerusalem church and Antioch church could all get together and recite the Apostles' Creed. Of course, the Apostles' Creed wasn't probably in circulation at that time. But the fundamentals of uh, Christ dying on the cross, Christ providing payment for my sins, they, they agreed in that. It was more... It was not so much an issue of justification as it was an issue of sanctification. You, the Jews were very concerned, okay, you're going to be a follower of Jesus. How are, you, how are you going to conduct, especially to the Gentiles who were thought to be unclean, goyim, goyim, dogs, uh, how are you, you, you're going to associate yourself as a follower of Jesus, but how, how are you going to live your life? What? What is your life of sanctification going to look like? Paul saw it more in terms of you are, you are tinkering with the doctrine of justification, which is the core. I, I really think that Paul's doctrine of justification by faith alone, through grace alone, is really the core of what he means when he speaks about the truth of the gospel. The gospel is uh, Christ died for our sins. Um, on the third day, rose again. They all agreed on the fundamentals of that gospel message. But I think what Paul means when he, when he speaks of the truth of the gospel, he's talking about specifically about the doctrine of justification. There was a disagreement over the doctrine of justification. And uh, look what he says. Yet the difference is not fundamentally over theology. It's not fundamentally over theology, but over the implications for a specific form of conduct that arises from theology. In other words, okay, you're going to call yourself a Christ follower, but look at the life that you're you're living. Uh, you you're still eating pig's feet. You're still not circumcised. It, it doesn't seem like your life has been transformed very much if you're and some some were accused of antinomianism you're just taking advantage of God's grace you say that uh, you're saved that you're a Christ follower but there's no evidence there's no fruit and maybe because there's no fruit in your life maybe there's no root in your life you, you see how how the same conflict presents itself to every generation of believers and this is why understanding Paul's Gospel, my gospel, as he describes it, uh, in, in particular, is important for every generation of believers. It, it is so easy, as, as we see, uh, to, to synthesize, to add something to uh, the truth of the gospel. So it's the implications. Paul is has this ability to look down the road and say, if if I allow this, if, if I don't uh, snuff this spark out here, it will turn into a raging forest fire. If I don't nip this in the bud, right, it, it has the potential to, to get away, right? If I allow this, 
then how am I going to later on not allow it without somebody saying, well, it was okay. You know, at Antioch, you didn't say anything. So Paul sees the implications of this. He, he is a visionary. He, he is not like uh, the Jerusalem bean counters. He's really convinced of what Jesus said. You shall receive power after that the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You shall be witnesses uh, to me, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. And that's what we see in the book of Acts. It starts in Jerusalem, but it ends in Rome. So in fact, in in Paul walking this tightrope, he's very careful in the first 10 verses of chapter 2 to say that when he met with the apostles, when he met with James and Peter at Jerusalem for two weeks, that they came to some kind of agreement because he uses the the word we. We, who is he talking about? We means more than just me, right? He's talking, we came to this agreement that uh, Peter would go to the circumcised and that I would go to the uncircumcised. So Paul's inclusion of Peter with himself in expressing that theology in 2, uh, 15 through 18. Uh, just look at that uh, quickly for a moment. Back up here for just a moment. If you're looking at the ESV text, you will see that there's a new paragraph that begins in verse 15. Uh, If you go back to verse 14, Paul says, I said to Cephas before them all, then you see the quote, right? So this is what he's saying to Cephas before everyone. he He hasn't called Peter to the side and said, you know, you and I need to have a private conversation about this. He's like, we're, we're going to, this is a pulpit-led church. Um, Paul says, we're going to get this straightened out right now. And he said to, to Peter, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? End quote. You see that in the ESV? Verse 15, no quote. So the ESV has taken the approach to this text that he's writing to the Galatians in verse 15. The NIV, the New International Version, puts verse 15 through the end of chapter 2 on down to verse 21, all in quotes. So it's saying not only is verse 14 directed to Peter, but verses 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21 are also directed to Peter. So there's some difference of opinion here. But look what is said in verse 15. We, so you might underline the word there, we. If Paul is actually saying this to Peter then, as the NIV would have us understand it, there is some points of agreement that Paul is trying to build on that. He doesn't want a a complete divorce because he sees that that would affect the gospel message spreading. So he said, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet, what? Verse 16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we, you see it, also have believed in Christ Jesus 
in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Really, that is, that is Paul's gospel message. If you want to understand Paul's gospel message, there it is. This would lead to, by Paul's use three times of uh, the pronoun we there, he is still hoping that there is essential agreement. And this is something that Luke wants to teach in the book of Acts, is that there was no fundamental, essential difference between what Peter preached and what Paul preached. There was agreement. There was unity in the gospel message. And I think Paul, Paul's desire is to maintain that, but he also sees that if the, if the, uh, if the penny pushers, the bean counters in Jerusalem have their way, um, that small-minded men are going to shrink the great commission that says, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. So he's walking uh, this tightrope. He's hoping that Peter in this moment, will will recognize that fundamentally they came to an agreement when he visited them uh, for two weeks in Jerusalem. So we'll ask the question now, what was the truth of the gospel? This is number five on your handout. Here, here uh, there, uh, it's like a diamond with many different facets, and you can look at a diamond from all different points of view and, and see it reflecting the light in different ways. So here are some facets of uh, the truth of the gospel. Uh, Paul saw that to circumcise Titus, and for which he speaks about in the beginning of chapter two, he went to this Jerusalem meeting with Titus. They did not require Titus, even though he was a Greek, they did not require, the Jews did not require him to be circumcised. And Paul saw that to circumcise Titus and for Cephas and other Jewish Christians, uh, now we're in the Antioch story, to withdraw from their fellowship with Gentile Christians would violate the truth of the gospel. This is still an accusation that is leveled at the church today. I, I don't want to go to church because there's no, the church is full of hypocrites. I have, I have not found any strata of life that isn't peopled with hypocrites. I'm a hypocrite. You're a hypocrite. Everybody's a hypocrite. We all have things that we are want to hide that we don't want other people to know about. I mean, I clean up pretty good. And I want you to have good thoughts about me. I want you to think well of me. But if we know the truth of the gospel, we have come to the admission that looks are deceiving. Right? Uh, Jesus says about people, Uh, their, their mouths, their blah, 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 blah is saying the right thing, but their heart is far from me. And this is what the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah, when, when Jeremiah says in chapter 70, verse 5, 
The heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? There, you see, that is before I can receive the good news of the truth of the gospel, I have to receive the bad news about my present state. My present state is that I, I'm, I'm the prodigal son that has wandered off and, and spent all on nothing and, and would like to fill my belly with the corn husk of the pigs and my life's a mess and guess what it it takes he came to himself it, it takes we love him because he first loved us it takes a monergistic effort because we're dead in sins and trespasses this, this is the gospel story because we're dead in sins and trespasses how can i cooperate with the will of god when i how can a dead man do god's will it takes it takes the implanting of a new principle. Uh, we, we call it being born again. That has to take place in a person's life. They wake up. And, you know, I, I finally came to the end of myself. Don't you think that the prodigal son at some point finally came to the end of himself? What, what caused him to turn and go back, make the journey back to his father's home? What caused him to rehearse what he was going to say to his father? I've sinned against you. I've sinned against heaven. heaven. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. He never gets those words out all the way. He, he gets the words out. I've sinned against heaven. I, I've sinned against you. But he, the father doesn't allow him to say, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Nobody's worthy to be called the father's son. We would not have the truth of the gospel today if it had not been for Paul standing up and taking the heat and saying, no, 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 look, look we're going to get this straightened out right now. You, Peter, are living like a Gentile, but now you're going to want to force Gentiles to live like a Jew. It's not going to work. It's not going to work. So number six, what was the truth of the gospel? Again, if we ask the question, here's Mu again. In place of the agitator's synthesis of faith, what, what is synthesis? You've heard me uh, use the simple for formula. Christ plus nothing equals what? Everything. Christ plus nothing equals everything. That, that's the truth of the gospel. When you're saying Christ plus circumcision, Christ plus good intentions, do you, do you run into people who have, don't understand the gospel they have a misunderstanding of the gospel. I'm not saying that God's not at work in their life, but, but I talk to people all the time. They're, they profess faith in Jesus Christ, but they say things like, I'm trying to do better. Well, you know, we, we, have, we should compliment them, right? And that this is good. You're trying to do better, but the, God, the truth of the gospel it's not what you do for God, it's what God has done for you. So in all you're trying, I don't know about you, but any time that I've tried really hard, more often than not, I, I've had to confess that I've failed. You know, th this is really for the last... Um, 
35 years of my life. Can you believe it's been that long? 22 plus 13 is 35. For the last 35 years of my life, I, I have staked that whole 35 years on, on this message. We, we hear it in phrases like, it's not about, it's not about you. We hear the gospel most often by accident. Rarely do we hear the gospel, the truth of the gospel on purpose. This is what this is what Paul is all about. When you when you read in order that, in order that, in order what it what are what is the manifold purpose of God? What is this mystery that the angels would, would like to look into? that they, they do not fully understand. So in, in place of the agitators, and there were agitators in Galatians, they were trying to convince them that, you know, Paul's a nice guy, he's a wonderful fellow, but he doesn't have the real old-time gospel the, of the Jerusalem apostles. Oh, back in the old days, they preached it straight and hot. And you either got in or you got out it ends up being, is a, it's a gospel of enculturation. It's a gospel that says, you know, if you kind of clean your act up and dress like we do and talk like we do and like the music that we do and go to church with us and put up with us every Sunday, then we will accept you as being part of us. Paul is, is militating against this synthesis, this addition of a foreign element into faith in Christ. In place of the agitator's synthesis of faith in Christ and the law, Paul insists on an antithesis or antithesis, it is Christ and therefore not the law. Paul Paul is insisting you, you cannot have both. If you have both, you lose both. Number seven, what, again, what was the truth of the gospel? What Jewish Christians need to do is imitate Paul. And really, Paul, Paul comes out and says this in one of his other writings. He said, be imitators of me. Follow me as I follow Christ. That's a bold thing to say. Who gave him the right to say that? It was this revelation that he had received. What Jewish Christians need to do is imitate Paul, who in order truly to live for God, has replaced his attachment to the law with an attachment to Christ. Look at verses 19 and 20, chapter 2. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. And, And really, we saw it a few weeks ago, one of the scholars said, could Paul be talking about Baptism, water baptism here. And N.T. Wright says, well, we don't have the right to import that into the text if it doesn't specifically call it, but it's an interesting thought. When Paul says, I'm crucified with Christ, and he speaks of the circumcision of Christ being baptism in Colossians chapter 2, is Paul, as he's writing this, thinking about that time when he was baptized and as the baptism, the one who was being baptized, he called on the name of the Lord, washing away his sins. I died to the law so that I might live to God. See, so you can't have both. <laughs> I died to the law. 
The law is dead to me so that I might be alive to God. I have been crucified with Christ, but it is no, uh, I'm crucified with Christ, but I'm still alive. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That is so uniquely Paul's message. This idea that Christ lives in the believer by faith. He owns that. That is his trademark. Again, what was the truth of the gospel? This is number eight. That human striving does not result in justification. Human striving does not result in justification. Paul says elsewhere, I do not frustrate the grace of God. Human striving uh, can get in the way. Number nine on your hand, it is not what we do. I think if, if, if you don't really understand the gospel message, there's no better paragraph than this. It is not what we do, but what God works in us that shapes faithful Christian living. Brother Eddie used to say, you know, that God delivered him from the taste of alcohol, right? But he um, he had to fight against uh, when when to stop smoking. That that was a, a battle, a struggle. Someone might say, well, why would God deliver you from alcohol and not also deliver you from uh, cigarette smoking? Of course, and then we have the we have the question in there, you know, those are two big things on the Christian scene, right? You know, should Christians drink and should Christians smoke? And nowadays, a variety of things to smoke. In the Old Testament, God didn't deliver all the enemies out of the land because he wanted to teach Israel the art of warfare. So God may deliver on one hand, right? But allow you to work struggle through it to learn the art of warfare on the other. But in the end, it's not what we do, but it it is God still at work within us. He may take the enemy out with a fell swoop, or he may say, the song we heard last week in the prelude, I I pray that God would move the mountain, but God wants me to climb. He wants me to learn how to climb. We would like the mountains just to be removed, right? And God says, well, I'll I'll take the Alps away, but there's a few trails you're going to have to to learn how to climb. In the end, it all abounds to the glory of God. Whether he removes the mountain or teaches us how to climb, it is God who is at work within us. And that shapes faithful Christian living. So preaching in contemporary to contemporary Galatians here, every church, the Galatian heresy, is always crouching at the door. And it's the saddest thing to hear preachers, ostensibly preachers of the gospel, preaching behind the pulpit, and they don't understand the doctrine of justification by faith. Martin D. Lloyd uh, Lloyd Jones came out and said it. If you don't understand the doctrine of justification by faith, please don't stand behind a pulpit. I don't know that there's much more of a truthful statement than that. Preacher is a hungry man preaching to others, telling them where bread is. 
And if we don't, if we don't understand that concept, if we don't understand the desperation of the situation, we will never understand what Paul calls the truth of the gospel. So preaching to contemporary Galatians means preaching less about what we are supposed to do, which, by the way, includes giving good advice, right? Teaching you how to handle your finances, teaching you how to have a better marriage. <laughs> you know, all of those things have their place, right? But that's not the gospel. You can be bankrupt and divorced and still know the truth of the gospel. That's what makes it good news. Your life, my life might be a mess, but that pearl of great price So our preaching is not supposed to, should be less about what we're supposed to do for God, more about what God has done for us. When we really hear the gospel, I, I believe this to be true, and I've been challenged by other people on this. People have even said to me, well, look at the people in your church. I'm like, yeah, it's a great bunch, isn't it? It's a great group. We're fellow strugglers. Sometimes it's not pretty. Sometimes it's ugly. I, I don't feel authorized to hide the non-pretty stuff and, and try to clothe the emperor when the emperor has no clothes. Look, it, this is just the way it is. It does not change the truth of the gospel. Where we really hear that gospel, that's the problem. Where, and you're not going to really hear it if you only have an opportunity to overhear it every, every other Sunday or one Sunday out of the year. When all you're hearing is a list of things that you should do, you shouldn't do, or how bad the world is, or, or hurry up, Jesus, get here and rescue us, and million and one other things that a preacher can be preoccupied with on a Sunday morning to keep the nickels and noses coming. When we really hear the gospel, more faithful lives will fall. Now, this is hands down the best gospel statement that you will ever hear by Dallas Willard. Grace is not opposed to effort. Uh, we might have a problem with that. So he qualifies a statement. He says, "It grace is opposed to earning. Grace is opposed to earn. What is the truth of the gospel? Grace is not opposed to effort. Wear yourself out. Wear yourself out. God will say, wear yourself out and when, because when you're weak, I'll come in and be strong. When you've given up, underneath are the everlasting arms. When you finally come, I'll just wait for you to come to the end of yourself. And when you come to the end of yourself, and I am your all in all, then we can move forward. Grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. Effort is action. 
earning is attitude. <laughs> you see, have you been around some Christian people? Their attitude just sucks. Like nobody else is going to heaven but them because they deserve to go to heaven because they work hard at it. I don't go to the bar and I don't play. Uh, I guess they play, they, they bowl now. That's okay. I don't have a TV. No, that's okay. I don't have a computer. I don't have a monitor. Oh, that's okay. See, the rules of the good old boys club can change, especially when the good old boys are in charge of determining what the rules are. But you can't treat the truth of the gospel that way. Truth of the gospel is not determined by the good old boys club. I love what Dallas Willard says, you have never seen people more active than those who have been set on fire by the grace of God. That's it. That was a great change in my life 35 years ago. And by the grace of God, I... I have not changed that, and I will not change that by the grace of God till the day I die. This is the truth of the gospel. Thank you, Father. And on this fourth Sunday in Lent, we hear the call once again by the Holy Spirit to repent. Turn our face toward the wall. To admit like Peter did, there's no place else to go. Lord, we can't turn away and leave you. You have the words of eternal life. There is rejoicing in this sinner's heart today, Father. As you run to us with open arms. There is rejoicing in our hearts today, Father. As we look on this treasure in the field, this pearl of great price. What a wondrous story. What a wondrous father you are. May our lives continue to reflect that glory. We ask it in Jesus' name.